I'm Monica Johnson with Marshall Weber, and this is Brooklyn Calling. Okay, welcome to our show where we talk about artists, libraries, and social justice. Marshall and I are both artists who also head up Brooklyn Inc., an arts nonprofit located in Brooklyn, New York, on the unceded land of the Muncie Lenape people. And we created Brooklyn Calling to amplify voices in the artist book field and to explore art making as a tool for community engagement and for social change. And today, our guest is The Monument Quilt Project, which is um, a collection of more than 3,000 stories by survivors of sexual and intimate partner violence. It was a project of the Baltimore and Mexico City-based organization, Force Upsetting Rape Culture, and it took place between the years 2013 and 2019. In 2020, Bookland published a box set collection of archival materials of the Monument Quilt Project that represents the work of the project. And today we're joined by the co-founder, one of the co-founders, Hannah Brancato, and a leadership team member, Lorena Corusias. Uh, welcome, Hannah and Lorena. Hello, hello. Hello. Hello, thank you so much. I'm wondering if um, the both of you could, you know, for our listeners, describe some of the actual history of the quilt and some of, you know, the, the, the method that the, the quilts were constructed under so that they can get an idea of just how intimate and intense and healing that process was. Hmm. Yeah, I can, I can start and maybe like I'll narrate us into the first tour that we did, which is when um, Lorena and I met and started to work together. So um, the Monument Quilt was co-founded by myself and Rebecca Nagel back in 2013, and we had already formed the Activist and Artist Collective Force Upsetting Rape Culture at that time. Uh, we formed in 2010, both of us having a drive to have a more public dialogue about sexual and intimate partner violence. So we wanted to make art and share stories and um, resist the silence around sexual and intimate partner violence. Um, and for me, that was part of that was coming out of working in a domestic violence shelter, an emergency shelter where the confidentiality and privacy was uh, a matter of safety. But I also, you know, in that space really felt that um, the kind of conversations and learning that happened within the shelter should happen beyond the walls of a shelter as well. And so you know, um, by the time we started the Monument Quilt, we had done a couple of culture jams. We were playing around with like modeling what a consent culture would look like. Um, I guess the one that people might be familiar with is the Pink Loves Consent Project, where we pretended to be Victoria's Secret, promoting a line of consent themed underwear and made a fake <laughs> website and, you know, got people um, excited about the idea that Victoria's Secret was putting ask first and <laughs> let's talk about sex on their underwear to replace slogans like no me, um, to replace slogans like, um, uh, uh, um, unwrap me and things like that. <laughs> oh um, so, you know, we, at that time, consent just wasn't even being talked about at all. You know, it's a word that now people are more familiar with and hopefully an idea that people are engaging with more. But in 2012, it just wasn't a conversation. And the, it was just like when the campus sexual assault movement was getting going. So um, we, we kind of like gathered an audience from that. And what we found was that people wanted to have these conversations and wanted to like be involved through art. Um, because it just I think art creates a little bit of a buffer. This is, you know, we're talking about um, sexual violence, we're talking about trauma, but art creates like a little bit of room to engage um, in a way that, I don't know, maybe it, like there's a form of like protection or um, yeah, just just space to uh, maybe tell your story in a different way. 
Um, but, you know, in modeling all this stuff about consent and like having fun with it, we just recognize that we do live in a world as much as we want to create this culture of consent. We live in a world where so many of us are survivors and we wanted to create the monument quilt as a way of making space for survivors to be safe in public, to be safe, to be able to identify ourselves in public, to be safe, to be able to connect with each other and tell our stories in public. Um, and to create like a public ritual of healing in that public space. And so that happened like on a few levels. And, you know, from the very beginning, before we even formed the leadership team in 2014, from the beginning of the Monument Quilt in 2013, we were like consulting with lots of people. Um, my background is in art and community-based art. And um, so we were collaborating with like social workers, therapists, um, people in other fields, like all along the way. And um, with some of those folks, including Kate Bishop, who ended up being on the leadership team too, we made like a workshop um, guide. So we created a document that anybody could use that was a guide about like how to facilitate your own monument quilt making workshop. There were instructions about how to make your monument quilt square. You could, um, you know, paint on it. You could tell your own story. You could write a message of support for other survivors. Um, there was also a document that we put together called Knowing How to Support Survivors, where we gave people a little bit of information about how trauma works. And the idea with that is you don't have to be a professional to hold space to share your story as a survivor um, and to hold space for other survivors to share their story as well. And um, here's a little bit of information about how to take care of yourself and each other while you're doing that. And so um, we started doing these workshops, collecting the quilt squares, mostly in Baltimore. The very first workshop was at the Spiritual Empowerment Center in Baltimore. And um, and then we started to organize tours of the Monument Quilt. So that's when we got connected with Lorena and many other uh, leaders that ended up uh, really shaping the Monument Quilt into what it ended up being. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you want to jump in here and talk about the amazing workshops and everything, um, and the display that you organized in New York. Of course, Anna, and thank you so much. And for me, it was an opportunity. I was working at that time in an agency with survivors of different type of violence. And, uh, I was working with a small group in Queens, New York organizing a workshop about sexual violence. And then uh, the, they contact me and see if I wanted to be part of these workshops with the Monument Quilt. And when I started reading about it, the idea was really opened my mind because it was not, I'm a psychologist and a social worker and my practice was more in one-on-one in this private setting. And what I learned or what the Monument Quilt brought to me or to my practice was the power of the community, the power of the solidarity and the empathy, and the power of these public spaces to heal, but also the power of putting all those stories out there. And I remember some of the displays in Corona Queens when people were not talking about sexual violence and there there were many communities like really not talking about it and having the stories there by the seven train on the street, it was really powerful. And uh, I just love the idea when I hear it. And uh, the part that just Hannah described on sharing the tools and the way to do the workshop was also something that attracts me into the project. Because many projects are like, a, this is my project and I have the tools. That never happened with the Monument Quilt. It was in the website. It was public. It was available to be printed. All the tools, even the mandalas. I remember like going to the website and say, oh, I can print these mandalas too and to use them during the workshop. So that was the, my first approach with the monument quilt. 
And uh, then I started working and I realized that because this was founded in Baltimore with people that speak English, I found like how this community I was working with and I still working with Spanish and indigenous language speakers can be included in this conversation and not left out to the into the conversation. And so it was beautiful the way that the community involve and interact with the quilt because our community were a lot into painting, stitching stories. And when we start with the first workshop, they just got in love with the workshop. As a matter of fact, some of the first groups are now running their own like sewing workshops around violence, how to face it, what to do. And I think that's beautiful. And I think it's something that the quilt created and it was kids, moms, grandmas. And, uh, it was this intergenerational group that's still working. And when they fighting for the rights and for their space and reclaiming their space to tell their own story. Then they organize around getting like a, some a sidewalk for their bicycles. And they were like, oh, I need, we need this one. And they create another groups about uh, riding the city. And that was like a beautiful Another display that I, I, I remember now is the display at the border between U.S. and Mexico. And we display, I think there were thousand quilts in one side and thousand quilts on the other side of the border, just divided by the bridge uh, or by the river. And that was powerful. That was a way to say we are together and we are we we reclaim this space to heal and to be together, no matter the border. It's a project like a, I always revisit in different ways, in different ways, like the way that was offering this intimate experience of being able to, for many of them, for first time to tell their story, to put it in a piece of fabric, and others to read those stories and for the community to get involved I always think like this way to tell their story with people that feel safe and then going together to the community and display the quilt there it was really powerful and I think uh, that transformed many many experiences from survivors and uh, yeah, it's just powerful. And uh, every time that the quilt was displayed, I felt the power of the stories and the power of the survivors saying, hey, this is my space, this is my story. And I'm here with others, I'm not alone anymore. And I think that's one of the things that I love the most from the project. Can we go back to a, a point that either, I think you were implying, Hannah, where the, it sounds like there was a turning point in the project where whether or not you had conceived of it as an art project, um, you had been saying that your background was an, as an artist, and I believe the same was true of Rebecca Nagel. Is that true? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so so either either way, intention or not, I feel like some of the early press coverage articulated it as like two artists um, are addressing, uh, sexual and intimate partner violence through quilt making, et cetera, et cetera. Could you talk about what that turning point was like, whether it was conversations you and Rebecca had had, or if the community was actually just growing itself, uh, I guess kind of naturally into these other spaces where now all of a sudden you're working with someone like Lorena as a social worker and psychologist and, you know, Walk us through what that that time period was like and, and where that motivation came from. Yeah, yeah. There were 
like many turning points, I would say, <laughs> within the monument quilt. <laughs> um, but yeah, from the beginning, I will say that Rebecca and I understood that this was an idea that was going to have a life of its own and that needed to like be uh, be able to be owned by anybody that was part of it. So, you know, like Lorena was speaking to that anybody that was a part of it uh, there's this ripple effect and there's a way that that experience may be carried with what with that person, whether they made a quilt square or organized a workshop or organized one of the quilt displays. You know, we displayed the quilt 50 times um, all together across the U.S. and in Mexico. Um, and there were also other displays organized in addition to those 50, like the ones that Lorena organized in New York of smaller sections of the quilt, like after workshops would happen. And so, yeah, there just were this, like, there was this multitude of experiences happening. And one thing I think is always important to say, you know, you happen to be interviewing me and Lorena, um, the two members of the Force Collective that are still part of the collective are Shanti Flag and Mora Fernandez, um, who's based in Mexico City and brought a lot of um, the energy of the monument quilt Um in Mexico, and also was introduced to the project through Lorena, through that New York display. Um, but, you know, you could talk to either of them, you could talk to any of the, you know, there were about 20 people on the leadership team throughout the project, you could talk to the hundreds of people who hosted workshops or the thousands of people that made a quilt square and get a completely different narrative. I mean, there probably would be some common threads that, you know, kind of that we weave together into this quilt. But, um, but we all had our own, I guess, you know, our own role and it impacted us in different ways. So I, I think the project was designed for that by being a quilt, by being something that everybody could make their own. But then there were two, I guess there were two points when I think the quilt taking on a life of its own, um, I don't know, there was like an intense energy around it, I would say. So the first one was when force when when we decided to form a leadership team, and that was after the 2014 tour. So um, the first display was in Baltimore. Then we did a small display in D.C. And then in the summer of 2014, um, we organized a 14 city city tour across the U.S. and that included the Queens display. Um, and we worked really closely with uh, with folks on that display who had organized workshops in the lead up and realized that we needed more wisdom and more um, just organizing power and uh, ideas and leadership from people beyond like the two of us artists, right? Um, because it was more of a, I don't know, like there was this potential around movement building that was beyond just a symbol or a, um, just a moment. And so, yeah, forming the leadership team was a big deal. And we uh, started to have annual leadership retreats in 2014 when we brought everyone together and did some visioning and planning. Um, and then another turning point happened in 2016 when um, that leadership team and the staff, including Shanti that was involved at the time um, and Saida Agostini at the time, really, you know, started to, uh, well, I think actually Saida joined a little bit after this, but was definitely part of the movement to make the staff collective um, within Forest rather than having like more of a nonprofit structure with like a top-down leadership um, kind of structure. So in 2016, the leadership team really started to uh, hold us accountable to reflecting the values of the monument quilt, reflecting the values of decentralized leadership, of shared decision-making, um, you know, transparency about how decisions about money are being made um, and things like this. And so there were, yeah, there was a retreat in 2016 when a lot of those questions initially came up. And I would say like over the, in the, the two years after that, Force was doing some really challenging internal work to become a collective you know, create structures of accountability that also would have shared leadership. Um, and we definitely like didn't always get it right and made a lot of mistakes. Um, but I would say that we were holding ourselves because of the amazing support 
and like guidance that we had with the leadership team, we were trying to hold ourselves to a really high standard um, to do that work. So yeah, I would say those were the two main turning points. And then, you know, one anecdote that I also always like to share is that in 2013, when we started this project, we were like, yes, in one year, we're going to blanket the National Mall with 6,000 survivor stories. <laughs> um, and then like six years later, you know, we blanketed the National Mall with 3,000 survivor stories because the process was what mattered, not the product, not the picture, not the mm-hmm. number. And that's one of the things that our leadership team was really like, this, the, the focus needs to change. And Shanti was like, the focus needs to change. It's not about the number. It's got to be about mm-hmm. the experience of the people who are part of this. Sounds like a lot of dedicated people put in a lot of time. Oh my God. So much time and energy and emotional. It was a lot. <laughs> yeah. And that was a really hard time, right, Lorena? It was like, it was, it was really hard work that we were doing. Like, it was hard work because. Uh, I mean, in many ways for in, on my end, I had my full-time job, my full-time movements, and then this project was something that I was passionate about, but I didn't have enough time to do what I wanted to do with the quilt. I wanted to do more workshops. I wanted to do, I wanted to bring this experience, these healing spaces to more survivors because Sometimes I'm not an artist, and I always remember because there was one grant application that Hannah shared with me. You maybe remember, maybe not, Hannah. And I said, no, this is for artists, and I'm not an artist. And Hannah said, yes, you are. And I'm like, am I? (laughs) It's like, no, (laughs) I'm not. But I think it was a lot of growth also professionally, but it was an intense work, just these retreats, thinking on going three days or four days, like in a, to another city and to work together, really an intense, because Hannah was not the only one being like a holding to high standards. We all wanted to do it. We all think like 6,000 quilts were able to be collected in a week. We all thought so. We were like, yes, we just have to keep working harder. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. And and I think that reflection of 3,000 are more than enough because we are enough. And the work we did is enough. And uh, this is the beginning of something that is growing more in different directions and maybe other people can take it from here. And, uh, or maybe it can be transformed in a different way. And this initial goal of having 6,000 gold in a week, 6,000 quilts in a week, maybe was not what exactly we want. We want those spaces, at least on my end, I want those spaces to be like more available for our community. I want more survivors to have this possibility to heal in a collective way and like kind of uh, having the support and safety they need to tell their own stories. And and this idea of the girl to tell the many stories, not just one, was like it's something started turning in a different direction. And, and I think uh, that's the beauty of the intense work that we put into this. And we all put our, our skills and what we could put over there the time and every time that I was like, yes, I'm gonna put more time here. I gonna and I just couldn't. It, until I got to the point that this is what I can do and I'm gonna do it on my best way. And uh yeah, but every time I see the quilt, I see pictures of the display at DC or the display at the border of Mexico and US. I, I got this feeling of, let's do it again. Let's get those <laughs> other, other quilts because yeah. it's just powerful. 
It's powerful. Yeah. And it's like, no matter how hard it is, every time, I mean, so now that it's been three years since the final display, every time I have a conversation like this, like Lorena, we haven't, you know, we haven't even talked on the phone in a little while. Like we haven't caught up in, uh, you know, but every time I, you know, you and I connect or I connect with somebody that we were organizing so closely with for those years, I just have like so much hmm. nostalgia and, and I want I want to go back in part because of their relationships. Like I want to go back because mm -hmm. we were, it was a struggle and it, and you know, like, and there was conflict, you know, and it was painful at times, but it also was beautiful. And it was like, oh God, I, I grew so much in that time. And I think we all did like beyond what we thought we, we were capable of, um, you know, yeah, it wasn't about the 6,000 quilts. It was about like our personal growth, the growth of our relationships, like the depth of what we were building, you know, together. And I mean, if anything, like my takeaway, like I'm like working on a project now that's called Move Slowly because my takeaway was that when you're doing work about trauma and many of us were survivors, most of us were survivors in the leadership team and um, everyone in the staff collective, um, our trauma comes up, you know, not just our trauma from sexual violence, but trauma that folks have experienced um, in terms of like white supremacy and, you know, other forms of oppression. And so all of that is like coming up in the space. And for us to do the work right, it meant like being willing to go a little more slowly so that this can be a healing experience for us too, not just for other people like we have to begin with ourselves we have to you know be gentle and kind with ourselves first in order to meaningfully make that space for other people i have so many questions for you guys <laughs> <laughs> you, you just laid out so much stuff marshall are you trying to hold back <laughs> i don't want to cut you off lorena so <laughs> but marshall how you you must have questions brewing on in, in your brain right now well to me, what is a little overwhelming is the scope of the issue, right? Because we're, you know, you're talking, um, Hannah just mentioned how many of the people involved were survivors. And we think of, I, I mean, I just think of how much of our community are survivors. And then you also think of the issue of dealing with harm, but then also dealing with prevention. And then all the other things, like to me, it, uh, you know, this is all going on during the Trump administration also, you know, a, a big chunk of this during Me Too, during Trump, during the whole crisis with the disappearance and murder of indigenous women across the Americas. So it's, it's very intense. I mean, as, as a cis male identified person, it's very intense. The, the implications are um, immense. And so, yeah, I feel with every sentence, there's another question, another place to explore. But I, I, I want to hear more from Hannah and Lorena in terms of, you know, what, what waves went out from this project? Hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, overwhelm is a good word. <laughs> overwhelm is a really good word for it because um, I think I think that, like, I guess just one other thing I'll say about the internal work of the collective and within myself even is that, you know, when I'm, when I, what we're talking, when, when we're talking about like the sense of urgency and focusing on the end product, we're talking about white supremacy culture, you know, and as a white person, I mean, there's definitely ways that I in particular have internalized messages about the way that work should be done and the way that I need to show up to be like effective in my work. Um, and like we all live in, you know, within white supremacy culture and within capitalism. And so I think we all are affected by those messages, you know, regardless of identity. Um, but I had to, I just had to like really take a close look at how was that affecting like what my vision was for this and how I showed up. Um, and everything like that. And like, for me, part of the ripple uh, is, you know, continuing that work, <laughs> continuing the work of like, how do you actually undo white supremacy culture? How do you like tell a deeper story about where it comes from and um, how to let it go? Um, yeah. And, you know, I think within force, we did 
manage to um, call it out and, you know, try to make it better. Um, but, you know, we were always talking about intersectionality of how, how the intersections of sexual violence with immigration, you know, with racism, black women are criminalized for self-defense, you know, talking about, um, you know, the higher rates of violence against indigenous women. And then, you know, within making sure to amplify those stories, I think we just also realize that we have to, I guess, just be doing our own work on our own identities and like giving ourselves that space for healing as well. Um, but yeah, I, so I, you know, I think that that's one way. And then, um, I think that there's like continued organizing, um, that's happening. I, you know, I'm curious, Lorena, for you to share about the organizing that you're doing now, um, with Mixteca in New York. Yeah. I mean, a lot of things come to my mind now. And, um, as we speak, I'm reflecting on what happened also with me because I'm an immigrant from Mexico and, uh, I was really going through a lot of abuses at work. And then the, the Monument Quilt Project was my place to feel safe, secured, and, and know that the white supremacy and other things were not present, but we were able to talk about it. And that was healing itself. Having the experience of being there it really helped me to understand many things that for me were new because I wasn't aware of all these things around me. I came from Mexico. In Mexico, I always said in Mexico, I was a psychologist until I was like, hold on, I'm a psychologist wherever I go. That doesn't mean that I am not. As soon as I cross the border, I forget everything. No, I didn't. So it, the licensing <laughs> process is another way that white supremacy is, is um, it's taking place here or the way mm -hmm. that your credential has to be approved and uh, all these mm -hmm. situations. So the quilt, the, the process, I think those pieces of the quilt, when we put it together, it was all a way to put together some pieces of my personal life. And I think in that sense was also healing, a healing process for me. And that informed my practice a lot because I, I started, you mentioned something about how often these abuses are happening in our country. Yes. And I started asking more questions to the people I was working with. And then we decided to write something about uh, sexual violence on immigrant communities when they are seeking job in US. Because we realized most of them were sharing stories like, yeah, I was working as a, taking care of babies. I was cleaning houses. I was working in different places and I was sexually assaulted. And then I didn't say anything because of my immigration status. So I was working in an organization and I felt like I want to do more. I want to work with more communities. So right now I'm working at Mixteca. Mixteca is based in Brooklyn. And I was listening that your office is around here. We are on 23rd and 5th Avenue in Sunset Park. And uh, yeah, we are really close. And uh, this place where Mixteca is located is in Sunset Park. But we are now called South Slope. <laughs> the gentrification, another yeah. expression of, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like, no, we are not South Slope, but of course, developers want, wanted to call it South Slope is more, it, it, it will be sold easier. And um, anyway, so right now I'm continuing working with immigrant communities. I've been doing more work with indigenous communities. 
I realized how many of them are here. During COVID, things were really difficult for our community because all the disparities. It's like a, obviously a, the the health crisis affected more communities that are more vulnerable. So we started doing another type of work also in this idea of collective healing. So we have a community fridge outside from the organization uh, where people can bring food or take food. Uh, and we have another Mercadito Solidario, which is like a solidarity food pantry in Spanish is better. Mercadito Solidario is better. It's like it's difficult to translate it. Uh, and uh, that's another place when we 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 ask the community to get involved in the solution and to open spaces to see why in this neighborhood where the apartments are getting super expensive are still leaving people with no food on the table and why they were the ones that have to go out during COVID because they didn't have the possibility to work from home. So uh, as Hannah was mentioning, different expression of uh, white supremacy. Those are the things I'm doing now among many, many more. And, uh, but still, I always wanted to go back in another, at least another workshop <laughs> of quilt making. And <laughs> I think that's going to stay with me for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I have to say that, like, you know, Lorena, when you say, oh, I wanted to do more, I just, I can't, I can't even imagine what that would have looked like, because, you know, you, you did so much just as part of the monument quilt as like your extra volunteer thing. And then in addition to, you know, this is just, that's just like the icing on the cake of like all of this other organizing that you're doing. Um, yeah, you're just, you're like a complete powerhouse and an amazing person. And um you, you know, I think it's important to say, like, you organize more quilt workshops yourself. Um, I think you probably organize more quilt workshops yourself and collected more quilt squares. Um, maybe than anybody else in the project, maybe you and Maura are tied, I'm not sure. But, you know, just hundreds of quilts came out of the workshops that you organized. Could, maybe this is a good time. I, I One of my questions that I'm, I'm trying to be patient with and, and take your advice that like, I don't always have to do more. I don't have to ask all these questions. We can slow down and just go with what we have. But this might be a good time to address one of those questions, which is like, what, what were those workshops like? You know, like how I'm so curious about that space that you all created over and over again that facilitated the quilt making. And then and also given the fact that, you know, these are you know, safe spaces um, that you built for each other to tell your stories. And sometimes those stories can be very traumatizing. And I'm also curious how you imagine those spaces could support that process and maybe along your path, how you realize there were different things or unexpected things that could support that process. And, and yeah, just talk, if you can talk about like even viscerally what it felt like to be in those spaces with each other. Yeah. Yeah, I at, at the at the beginning, uh, I usually when I have those workshops, I combine something that is sewing. For example, the first workshop it was about sewing when I got connected with the quilt. So we kind of partner the sewing workshop with telling the story. And uh, people, in my experience, the spaces were always appreciated because there were uh, many uh, factors. Like I remember in in the guide that the the it was created already when I got connected with the quilt. There was like a having a table with food, having some music, uh, having the mandalas available, what uh, material supplies you will need. So that was the way that I felt accompanied by the other members of the project. And uh, 
I know it sounds like a really traumatic experience, but I think it's more traumatic to be alone in your house or to to be re-traumatized when you try to do something. And the spaces, the worship spaces were at least the ones I was present or I witnessed. There were so much love and appreciation for others to to kind of uh, decided to openly share their stories there. And we, they were, they share as much as they want. Some people wrote all their story in the quilt and some other people made some abstract in the quilt. And some people did the words, some people did some creation. And uh, as the quilts, the workshops were different, but a, a commonality there was from the beginning, I feel like a transformation to the end of the workshops, like this possibility to tell to somebody else that is there just to listen and just to be with, with you and to be in community was really appreciated. And on my side, I was like, I was tropicalizing the workshops because as Latina, I remember, Hannah, I don't know if you remember this uh, hike for healing the, 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 the team organized around fundraising because, of course, we need some money for materials and other stuff. And I remember my community don't hike. If I do hike for healing, we won't have not even one. But how about if I do dance for healing? We <laughs> love dancing. So we did in the hike for healing, we did our, we did our version, dance for healing. And uh, that's what I said. It was different. I don't know in your experience, Hannah, uh, witnessing yeah. the workshops. I think you're right. Like, I think that every workshop space, you know, had probably its only own unique, you know, flavor. Like some of the workshops that I was in did have more of like a meditative or like a quiet tone. So, you know, you walk into the workshop space and there's maybe some tea and there's some like nice scents and there's, you know, materials and people are coming and going and, you know, there's, um, there's texture, you know, there's fabric, there's paint, there's, you know, thread to sew with. Um, it's definitely like a tactile experience, but people are invited to like engage with telling their story in a nonverbal way. So some people might write their story or write a message of support, but they might also, you know, just sew or draw or like, you know, kind of be more in their body in that kind of a way. Um, so yeah, some of the workshops that I was in were more like that. So there might be like less verbal sharing, but there was sort of an agreement and a witnessing of like holding that space together. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, the, the workshops, like the displays, everybody, uh, could take this template of what the workshops were, or what the displays were and make it their own, you know? So there might have been like more like laughter and joy and food in one space and more like meditation and like lavender scent in another space. But, you know, I think <laughs> what they had in common was like just, you know, making room for survivors to show up that, you know, the survivors that were in the space to show up in the way that felt safe and supportive to them. Marshall mentioned in the beginning this interest in material culture and like I think the tactility of the monument quilt is so important that it was about, um, especially with trauma, it, it was about uh, working through our stories in that physical way of stitching and painting, because there's a limit to the healing that mm -hmm. can happen verbally, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I, I think I knew that instinctually, and the folks that I worked with knew that, you know, the, the folks that we worked with to develop all of this knew that. Um, but one book that is a really great illustration of what I'm talking about is The Body Keeps the Score, which is about the way that our bodies hold trauma and therefore like we have to work trauma out through our bodies and through embodied mm -hmm. experiences like um, art making or meditation or movement. 
And so I think, yeah, I think that the, um, the embodied experience of like doing that in community was really powerful and transformative. You know, it was like a space for stories. Um, and then the space of the quilt displays becomes like a space both for stories and for grief, you know, like to be okay with like not being okay, like with having all of the complex emotions that come up when we share our stories and know that there's like support available at the display to hold you like you're not alone in that grief and like not that it's not that everything's fine but that like you can you can go there because there's there's somebody here to talk to if you need it there's a resource here you can sit in this booth and get acupuncture you know like that there's resources (laughs) available to you um yeah so you can feel what you need to feel and like be supported and held in that um I just want to say that I'm really struck by that phrase, the power of collective healing, because that seems so antithetical towards our capitalist and patriarchal arco culture. I just think of the healthcare issues that COVID brought up. And um, I guess I'd love to hear both of you kind of talk a little bit more about that, the collective, this concept of collective healing. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, from the beginning, I think our idea was that, you know, uh, talking one-on-one about, you know, talking one-on-one in like a traditional therapeutic setting is one model for healing, but it's not the only model. And like, we need more choices as people who have experienced trauma. Like, we need more choices about how do we engage in healing um, because, there's many levels and it's like nonlinear. Like for me, I actually like needed to engage in the monument quilt and like engage with um, groups of people around naming my story. Um, I guess that started when I was working in the domestic violence shelter, uh, you know, sitting in on support groups and then starting to like find language for my story as a survivor you know, it, 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 I needed to be in groups before I could be in a one-on-one setting because I didn't even know what I had experienced. Like I didn't even have words for it. So I think, um, I think especially when you're talking about, you know, with sexual and intimate partner violence, this is an issue that like can get so swept under the rug. There's so much gaslighting. Um, I think there's still a lot of like misunderstanding and misinformation about like what abuse even is. Like if you're talking about sexual violence and, intimate partner violence, psychological and verbal abuse, you know, these kinds of things. Um, it can be really hard to identify a name actually when, when it's happening. So I think collective healing is important because sometimes we see ourselves in somebody else's story. And I think that happened a lot with the monument quilt. People would be walking through a display, you know, the, the way that the displays were is that the quilts would be laid out on the ground. Um, and there were border, there were these scrolls that were set up around the edges of the quilt that had trigger warnings that let people know this is a project about sexual violence and you can choose to enter into the space. Um, and you can also choose not to, like you can honor these stories without reading them, you know. Um, and while you're in this space, like you're entitled to whatever feelings come up. There's no right or wrong way to be or feel. But Um, so, you know, for folks that did choose to go in and read the stories, I think often people had the experience of coming across a story that reminded them of their own experience. Um, and I know that I heard from lots of people over the years that maybe that was the first time that they like recognized their own experience as abuse or, um, you know, were able to share with somebody else about what they went through. Um, yeah. And there's even, you know, examples of people that ended up like speaking at displays that shared for the first time in a community setting about what they experienced. So I think what the power of that is, is that, you know, when you experience a, 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 a traumatic event, uh, it can feel unimaginable. Like it can feel like nobody wants to even be able, like wants to imagine what this would be like, but to have people willing to witness that um, and hold that means that you don't have to hold that alone. Like it releases some of the pressure from the individual, 
Um, and that's important because it's not an individual problem, right? Like this isn't something that just happens in these individual cases. This is a systemic problem. It's a problem that's related to, you know, the systems that we have in place. It's a problem that's related to the fact that we don't know how to hold perpetrators of abuse accountable. We don't know how to like transform so that abuse isn't happening. Um, we don't, you know, we're like, we're still working with the same numbers that we had when like we first um, got, you know, hotlines and shelters, like we haven't really lowered the rates of violence as much as we're trying to like intervene on it. So, um, you know, in order to do that, we need to be able to like witness um, one another's stories and like be able to move to move that I think that that's just like a first step to be able to like move um, that like these traumas need to be recognized recognized first they need to like be really like witnessed and held and recognized and so that started to happen now like I do think the Me Too movement has been powerful for that but you know the whole idea of having a public monument for survivors is that reconnection with community um, you know uh, Judith Herman in her book, Trauma and Recovery, writes about the fact that uh, veterans of war needed um, spaces to reconnect with community returning home. That's the power of the Vietnam War Memorial in particular, is a space for that trauma, that traumatic experience to be recognized, like a, an experience that almost is beyond words in some cases. Um and that survivors of sexual violence deserve that kind of space too. Like that's what the monument quote was modeled after. Um, so yeah, I think like when you ask like, well, yeah, say more about collective healing. It's like, it can't, it's, it's, it's that there's a limit to how much healing we can do individually. And like, this is a collective problem. So we have to be able to, you know, have collective spaces to deal with it. Um, I did want to ask one last question. Um, and answer it in whatever length is appropriate, but it goes into the spaces that you procured for these, you know, really monumental installations and knowing, you know, the range of them being sites where uh, sexual and intimate partner violence are happening, like, or like that are referential to the white supremacy culture that supports rape culture. Um, football fields, institutions, military spaces, um, on reservation land. Um, if there's anything else you want to chime in just to articulate the fullness of what that means to you before I continue my question, please do. Yeah. And also there were a few displays that were um, outside of prisons, um, one outside of a courthouse where there was a sentencing hearing for Marissa Alexander, who faced jail time for firing a warning shot in self-defense. Um, yeah. Right. So, so, so basically these places, I can't even imagine the kinds of like red tape that you confronted in order to either find the strength to just put, put your, put the installation there or have the permissions that were necessary. But there was one installation in particular that presented a very unique roadblock. And that is the final installation at the Washington mall in 2019, um, in June of 2019. And I, I, I want to, you, you know, it's what I'm talking about. So I'm just going to hand it over to you and, and, uh, walk us through what that was, what that limitation was that you were presented with. I believe it was sort of in the 11th hour of the event of this massive culminating moment and what you were asked to do and how you problem solve that and maybe how that felt, uh, to this, to the scope of the project as it completed. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So getting, getting permits and permission for displays was definitely always, um, challenging. And I would say it always happened through part, it usually happened through partnerships with the exception of the final display, which I'll talk about in a minute. But, um, those partnerships would be, you know, for example, with college campuses, like we always tried to, we were always partnering as much as possible with survivor led groups and, um, you know, student groups, uh, groups of advocates for survivors. Um, and I think that like the survivors always knew that this was going to be beyond like any kind of PR that the school or the military base could get for themselves by saying, hey, but look, we like hosted this display that the transformative uh, experience of the quilt being there for other survivors and what that would mean for their continued organizing. Um, 
you know, that that was the story. That was the purpose of the quilt uh, existing in these spaces of power. So it's sort of like, I think we got the permission in a lot of cases because a school wanted to look good and wanted to say like, yeah, we welcomed this thing. And I think the students and the survivors that made those displays happen, um, like trusted and knew that that was going to be like an act, a space of activation. And, um, and it was, I think in general, like the quilt was always a kind of like a jumping off point for, for folks to continue to mobilize with their communities. Um, but yeah, the final display was super challenging in many, many, many ways. Um, one of them was that the national park service had just renovated the national mall and, uh, the quilts could oh, not be directly on the ground is we found out sort of at the like, uh, ninth hour. So we had, you know, throughout the years been in touch with the park service and, um, you know, about what the permitting process was going to be. There's a precedent for a giant quilt being on the mall in the names project. Um, but it turns out the park service mm -hmm. is actually not super excited about re repeating that history. Like, you know, uh, they didn't love that as an of me as a precedent, bringing that up didn't help our cause. I'll say that. So, um, oh, <laughs> cause they were like, yeah, it killed the grass. <laughs> um, and so I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, so we basically had to come up with a way to lift the quilts off of the ground to display them. And so, um, my like wonderful, amazing partner, Kyle Smith, who, uh, has a, like design and fabrication company called Lanning Smith Studio, worked with us, collaborated with us. Also, Charlie Enns, who was a member of the leadership team, um, to and is a genius, you know, sculptor artist. Um, they, you know, and Kyle's team, and you know, me and Shanti and others, like all worked together to come up with a way to lift the quilts off the ground. We um, Kyle's team ended up fabricating these like six inch steel tent stakes that, uh, <laughs> like levitated the quilts and actually the visual impact ended up being very powerful. The quilts were floating hmm. above the ground. I mean, it was really beautiful. Um, but it was an expensive and time consuming <laughs> and like, you know, just again, it's like, we're dealing with this like beautiful, like spiritual, politically, like transformative thing. And then the logistics are also just like, <laughs> so uh -huh. just like hilarious. I don't know how else to say it. Like really <laughs> just like, really, this is what we're, this is what we're dealing with now, you know? Um, but there, th there was always that push and pull, like just the reality of, um, of life and, uh, what it takes to pull something like this off on top of like the bigger meaning of what we're trying to do. Right. Right. Like you can be here, but you really, you can't be here. You can be here, yeah. but you you just you have to be floating above here. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't it wasn't easy, but we got the permit, so you know. Yeah, I I, I wanted to thank you both because it's been very challenging, and um, I I think there's so much resonance in this idea of collective healing and kind of the original motivations of the project, and and I wanted to mention also just to come back to the material culture aspect. Um, in a small way, this project of the uh, monu monument quilt box set as a way to kind of fully document a, a, just a little bit of the experience, um, we've, we've had really interesting reactions to that. And um, I'm really happy that we can continue working on that project. And it kind of feels like giving students and members of the general public a chance to have an intimate you know tactile relationship with the project still and and so the project still continues in in many ways both large and small and i think um when people uh, it's even staff at bookland just kind of confronting the construction of the box set and dealing with those materials it's very evocative and again also very challenging and very inspiring yeah, thank you. Yeah, as we continue to archive it, I mean, I mentioned this earlier, but I really believe it's going to have another life and another story to tell. And the quilts, we can talk about it all day, but witnessing the quilts and like touching the quilts and being around the quilts is what the project is about, you know. So, um, yeah, we're continuing the archiving effort. There are more box sets by Booklin. There's also about 650 quilt blocks that we're looking to place in permanent collections. And so, you know, 
we're looking for like a network of institutions and individuals to join um, the Baltimore Museum of Art, University of Maryland, Baltimore County, Ohio University, just to name a few that um, have acquired a section of the monument quilt. And ultimately, our plan is to map all of the institutions or organizations or individuals um, so that you can see where this project that was once on display on the National Mall now is dispersed in their final homes and locations. So yeah, ongoing, it's going to probably be life's work to find a home for all of those blocks, but it's important to us to, to do and to continue to tell the story. Wow, that's fabulous. I love that idea. Thank you, Hannah and Lorena. Thank you. Yes. Thank yeah. you so much for Thank having you. us. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Brooklyn Calling. You can check out the show notes for ways to connect with Hannah and Lorena and the Monument Quilt Project. And if you're a librarian or a curator at an educational institute and you're interested in the Monument Quilt Project box set or other projects like this, you can email us at hello at brooklyn.org um, or you can check out our collection at brooklyn.org. This podcast was made possible in part by funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs and in partnership with the City Council and from individual donors to Brooklyn, Inc. You can support this podcast by making a donation at brooklyn.org slash donate.